Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Kirk Tholen, President of Alliance Royalty and SVP at Alliance Resource Partners. During the episode, Kirk breaks down the broader business of Alliance Resource Partners and discusses their long-term diversification strategy, which includes the minerals and royalty space, which they entered in 2014 and have continued to ramp up and refine in recent years. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Kirk had to say. Well, Kirk, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to do this with you for a while and you're a busy guy. And I think in the summer months, maybe caught you in a couple hours free. So I'm looking forward to diving in here. Same here. I'm glad we connected. You bet. So you came from the banking space and are now with Alliance running their royalty division. Let's give a little background for those who don't know you, where you grew up, kind of career path. Have you always been an oil and gas guy where you finance first and then oil and gas? Just to paint some context, and then we'll jump into the Alliance store. Yeah, sure. I, well, I grew up in a small town, a little micro town called Berwick, Louisiana, and St. Mary Parish, South Central Louisiana. So, you know, growing up, that was in a lot of other Louisiana Gulf Coast towns were there to service the Gulf of Mexico oil and gas industry. That being said, as, as a child, I tried everything I could not to get involved with oil and gas when your dad gets laid off for a third time, fourth time. You know, during the 80s when I was in high school and even junior high, it leaves a mark. And, you know, even though I found that particular side of business interesting, I chose to go into chemical engineering for a degree. What, what happened to me is during college, I had multiple jobs, but I eventually started working for Unical, basically as like an intern. But it, it ended up being 20 to 40 hours a week, depending upon, you know, my school studies and obligations with school. So I was a pseudo permanent employee for, you know, from 92 to 95. So by the time I graduated, I had a chemi degree, but I was basically a junior petroleum engineer because I was working on a reservoir engineer for those three years named Tom Poche. Got his gold. He treated me well, taught me a lot. Uh, but that transformed my view of what I want to do with my career. Now, I did work as a year as a chemi and confirmed that I, I, I much preferred the oil and gas side. So uh, not long after graduation, And that one year stint as a chemical engineer, I got back into oil and gas business with a services company called BJ Services, to where it was well bore fracturing, cementing, acidizing, cold tubing, you know, the kind of the full gamut and started out in in Lafayette. And they transferred me to Houston in 97, worked as a region engineer in sales and design, uh, engineering design for various clients. But they also put me in a lot of large customer bases, BP, Conoco, Devon, guys of that size, to some extent Exxon to where you're an embedded engineer and you're just part of the drill under completion team. But great company that ran its course. And the more the more exposure that I got to the business side, coupled with during that time, also went to night school, got an MBA from the University of Houston, kind of opened my eyes to something that I wanted to do preferably versus being a, a sales-oriented engineer, which again was was a great career move for me. It moved me into seeing the forest versus going tree to tree. And the best way that I really came to an understanding of, of where everything comes together, everything coalesces in a transaction. Like almost like uh, you never know an asset is good as when you're selling it or buying it. But everything comes together, finance, engineering, geology, market dynamics, the, the amount of variables. I just found it very, very appealing. So what I ended up doing is, is aligning myself with boutique advisory shop called Albrecht & Associates. 
And I was truly an associate. So I was self-employed for about seven years representing the firm. And uh, after almost going broke, it, it, you know, and getting to win underneath my wings, it really, it was probably the best career decision I ever made because it forced me, you either live or die, all right? And fortunately I lived, but it's baptism by fire. So I got ear deep in the transactions, every aspect of it, uh, developed the pipeline, started managing processes. I was obviously, you know, originating deals and closing deals. And that worked quite well. I didn't plan on leaving until that company, Albrecht was partially owned by Morgan Keegan Investment Bank. Then Morgan Keegan was acquired by Raymond James, who already had an A&B shop. So for a while there, it was like competing A&B shops. And ultimately, I knew the writing was on the wall and who was going to win. And, and also knew that Raymond James wouldn't want an independent guy on their roster. So I just took that opportunity to get formally into banking and moved over to Global Investment Bank called Credit Agricole, large French bank. I mean, by assets, probably third largest on the planet or something like that. I haven't looked in years, so maybe they moved up or down. I don't know. But it was investment bank light. So I started their AMD platform, built out the team, worked on cross-border transactions, domestic transactions, both AMD and MA, and even got into more of an understanding of what the commercial side did, even though I wasn't on the commercial side. And that worked again until it didn't. 2014 came around. And the French are very risk averse. So they were they were pulling in on anything energy and the green movement had started. And the writing was on the wall that they were eventually going to shut down their energy platform in the United States. So I had to find a new home. So I started looking around and through a recruiter, I was introduced to Houlihan Loki. And at the time they were mainly known for their restructuring work in oil and gas, but love the opportunity, love the bank, love the boutique independent component, which is the vice that regardless of who I represented, how I always approach the business. And I was employee number one in Houston. So worked there with a gentleman named JP Hansen in order to build out that office, work on AMD, MA. A great team was put together by the time I left. I think we had or they had 65 people. So yeah, I, I, I didn't that's where we met. I didn't realize you were the first Houston hire because Hulahan's really grown as Scotia and BMO and others have closed their doors in Houston over the last two, three years. Most have gravitated over to Hulahan. So they're really one of the larger shops now. So that's it. Uh, that's kind of funny. It's, it's a fabulous success story. I mean, the, the team has, we worked tirelessly. Once the market realized the full scope and breadth of services and the independent nature, and I'm sure they've only improved since, since I left, just because they've continued to grow and evolve. So I was, I was really proud at what that Houston office and the broader oil and gas platform had become over years. And, you know, hopefully I contributed a small part to that, but I wasn't really looking well-fed, very challenging, rewarding work, and just had a random call from a recruiter representing a coal company. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, and I'd probably help place eight or 10 people over my career saying, Hey, I'm not interested, but you may want to call this guy. And, and when I received the call from a recruiter, I'm like, I don't know who you should talk to. I said, I'll give it some thought and let you know. And then and I gave it some thought. And I'm like, well, you know, I've been on the transaction side, be it through boutique advisory and investment bank for quite a number of years. There's always more to do. But, you know, this was an opportunity to align yourself with someone. Number one, get back on the company side. Number two, get on the mineral side, which I have been increasingly uh, not only exposed to, but gained a lot of interest as far as the unique nature of what mineral ownership does for personal individuals, as well as companies, be it public or private. And the, the advantage is that 
Alliance had already made a pretty material investment into the space, but they had kind of outsourced a lot of the leadership as far as technical understanding through uh, Evercore Advisory, who did a great job. And and there, there were people that were assigned to manage the portfolio, but there was no one that really had been doing oil and gas their entire career. There was certainly no, te- no technical team. So the more that I talked with Joe Kraft, the CEO, and Robert Sachs, the EVP, and some other people, the family nature of, of the company, the long-dated season management team is very consistent, have a history of making a lot of right decisions for a very long time, and the need to diversify and the interest in putting material capital into the oil and gas mineral space through Alliance Royalty, I found pretty interesting to help you know, instead of, you know, an investment banking, you rent, you don't own. So you're in a transaction, uh, you do as good a job as you can and move on to the next deal. You never really see the children grow. So I found it an interesting opportunity to kind of get in with a company, with a seasoned professional team and, and a good base of assets and, and work with them to help grow the segment and, and to see it evolve over time. And that's what I've done since I've been here. So one of the first things was hiring out the technical team, getting our arms around the asset base, take active ownership of what we already own. Um, because a little bit of history, this is the first part of, or this is one of the first parts of Alliance's diversification strategy. So by revenue or by EBITDA, we're, we're probably 85% thermal coal company and 15% mineral revenue. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are gonna be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Real, real quick, so did did y'all have any oil and gas minerals exposure through your coal rights? Was there any overlap 
there or this is purely a diversification strategy how you guys got it's into the purely diversification strategy but it's funny that you bring that up because last year we started receiving these million plus dollar checks at one of our mines because whenever we bought the coal rights it was it was everything down to the core and this particular mineral right ownership we bought from exxon and they never severed anything so when i believe it was southwestern started drilling marcellus wells underneath our our ownership we started receiving these checks and they were large royalty interest exposure per well. So it was, we owned it, but never even really knew about it for a while uh, because we never had a reason to look at it because we were focused on coal, but that's only a little bit, but the vast majority, 99.9% of what we currently own was intentionally acquired starting in 2014 with a partnership with Larry Dale. So we committed capital with all Dale 1 and all Dale 2 and all Dale 3, and all stands for Alliance. A lot of people don't realize that. So we were the anchor investor, the large investor, and you had GP and LP ownership to kind of partner with Larry to grow this platform. And obviously he hit other LPs in all of his funds. He's been a great partner and we still align ourselves with him for you know, our land administration services uh, to where we've shared resources and that's how we managed the back office. So we invested pretty heavily in all Dale 1 and 2. And a small position in all Dell three, which still have an LP ownership in. Uh, but in 2019, we bought out what we didn't already own from Larry in an acquisition in January, February of 2019. And then subsequent to that, we made another material acquisition from wing one and wing two NGP companies in the Permian in, in August of 2019. And that's the, the majority of what we own currently. We since made a couple acquisitions since that time and continue to try to be acquisitive. As price goes up, it gets a little bit more difficult as a buyer, just because you don't have the price upside that you may feel you can, if you make some mistakes on underwriting, you have a little bit of cash cushion. If you think that if you're at 70, that oil may eventually go to 90, you kind of feel good about that. When oil's at 120 or 110, it kind of changes how you risk things. And I think that's why you've been seeing a lot of, you know, that's still bid-ass challenges in oil and gas space, specifically minerals. And the dynamics are very unique. And that, well, the sellers don't have to sell. It's not like they have a cash call or a capital call coming anytime soon. So if they don't like the price, they can just sit on it and wait. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Sure, sure. So taking a step back, talk a little bit more about the broader alliance business. I think what's really unique about y'all is you have this steady stream of cash flows coming from coal that you're reinvesting into minerals. And so I've seen this in the agribusiness with some family offices where you're taking a pretty steady revenue stream and you're diversifying into something to obviously achieve diversification from an investment perspective, but maybe get a little more upside and something that could be declining or doesn't really have growth potential. Let's talk about the coal space a little bit, where Alliance fits in, kind of macro level supply demand and where you see coal going in the future. I think it's important to understand in this alliance story, and then we'll jump back into you know alliance royalty and the minerals royalty strategy and some of the other things you're working on. But full picture there, and and the fact that you guys are public as well, it is very much a family run, family owned business. But y'all are public. You have a lot of investors, large retail investor base, right? Break all that down, and then where you guys operate, and how many mines, and and how that all fits in. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we're we're public been public for over 30 years now. Company public in '99, and we're a match limited partnership, and that was 
unique, especially for a coal company at the time. But to your point, you know, the cash flows, the cash flows of past were a lot more steady. They're pretty steady right now. In fact, they're growing, but they were pretty steady because you had one, two, five, 10 year term contracts to where you were kind of production driven. It, it wasn't if you could sell it, is if can you produce enough? And then you had a locked in price for quite a number of years, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. The, the tide t- started to change quite a bit when I guess natural gas came in as an alternative fuel source and environmental restrictions were shutting down some of the mines and some of the utilities. And the ability to have that consistent cash flow was somewhat compromised because maybe they were going into quarterly contracts, you know, annual contracts. And you can't turn a mine on a dime. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. But we do, we're very proud of that business. It's going to be around for a lot longer than what people think. The rumors of thermal coal's death have been greatly, greatly exaggerated. And I'm quite certain that unless people like to be hot in the you know, summer and cold in the winter, that they're going to need baseload coming from somewhere. That being said, we're not fooling ourselves and that the decline is going to continue over time. But to your point, the cash flows are robust and that is the core of the company. We pride ourselves on efficiency, on being the lowest cost operator in Illinois Basin. We're the largest operator in, in Appalachia predominantly thermal coal base. We do have one MET mine called Matiki. So right now with the price of, of MET coal, quite frankly, thermal coal, all of the mines are doing extraordinarily well. And we're challenged by not what we can sell, but how much we can, can we produce. So hiring people is challenging, even though the, the pay is quite extraordinary relative to historical terms. Logistics, getting the coal from A to B on rail has been very difficult. So, you know, but for human resources and, and logistics, we would we would be selling more coal than we are right now at, at prices were triple to quadruple where we were a couple of years ago. So we've we've delevered a separate un, unsecured bonds and we've been harvesting cash on the balance sheet and we've increased our distributions. So we are a yield vehicle being an MLP. So we're gonna have, you know, and Joe Kraft has stated the increase that he expects to share with our investor base over the upcoming quarters as it relates to distribution increases. Over time, we're still going to have a large cash cushion that we're using for general corporate purposes, obviously, for acquisitions, and specifically for acquisitions in the transitionary investments, which we recently made two. Uh, One was a Tulsa-based company, EV charging company called Francis Energy, and the other one is called Infinitum, to where we participated in the largest investor in a Series D round. So we're excited about both of those. That's not where it's going to end, but that's also the second part of my job is job A is oil and gas minerals, and job B is to work with, with the senior management team and others within the organization on prudent diversification investments to where eventually by 2030, instead of having two credible seconds, maybe we're going to have five, right, to where we're more diversified cash flow vehicle. But I will say that the diverse, energy diversification investments are more challenging because a lot of them are, it could be four years pre-cash flow. And being a cash-on-cash investment company, that makes some of these analysis is very difficult, but they're necessary. And we just need to figure out where we can, A, continue to work with our current customer base, namely utility providers. So can we, you know, build things to help the, you know, the grid infrastructure? B, on EV, we have we have a tech company that we've only recently started talking about called Matrix, uh, to where we originally, that was created through a small acquisition, which we grew to make our minds safer, mainly through proximity detection and other, other avenues and just more efficient, but the you know, full complement of electrical engineers and other high, high caliber employees that we could repurpose 
in order to augment some of the growth of these investments that we're making. So we're looking at that as well and actively making investments into Matrix to help help whatever people we partner with on investments like Infinitum or, or, or Francis or whatever comes down the pike next. On these diversification investments, uh, it sounds more like you're being a seed investor or an LP in these energy transition businesses. I mean, where my mind kind of goes is you have this cash in the balance sheet, right? You're an operator of coal mines. Theoretically, you could have been an operator of oil and gas centers, but you decided to go down the royalty model. And so you don't need you know, full operational staff and, you know, CapEx and everything. Have you looked at royalty models in different sectors? Yes, we have, and we continue to evaluate that. We've looked at gold, at lithium, mm-hmm. roaming, haven't made investments in, in those areas. Also solar and wind rents, which are quite pricey because it's about a 6% cap rate or better. So some of these do, the truth is the returns, if you're looking at near-term returns, you're going to choose oil and gas every time versus some of these other ones. But part of the broader strategy is you need to have diversification to where you're not completely all fossil fuels. But it has to be balanced with the right investments to where not only do they generate cash on cash returns at some model point in the future to where we can deem that a good investment, that it may also grow into one of those other credible segments. So, you know, be it be it Infinitum or be it uh, Francis or whatever we invest in next, ultimately, we want to have active ownership into something that we can help not only just be growth capital, but be a true partner and, and maybe just be part of that company, if not drive the company at some point in the future to where it's just another segment within the umbrella. Yeah, I mean, what, wouldn't you say the analogy could really be those are the Alldales of your early minerals investments, right? And whether you become a part of those companies or, or take, you know, that's a way of dipping. That, that's a perfect in water. Yeah. So, I mean, case in point is a perfect segue in that we had that initial investment in 2014. We learned the business. We started really liking the business. And then we decided to take over the business, all right, in 2019. So there's a maturation time. And some of these investments are small. Some are going to be larger. And quite frankly, we made investments in the past that we chose not to expand. We were an investor in a compressor company called Kodiak just for a pref and we were redeemed out within a year and a half and had a nice return. But we were also at that same time thinking about how we can get out because we just didn't think that that was the business we wanted to be in. That was, I'm not sure where the nuances were because that predated me, but for whatever reason, we'd made the strategic decision that this is a great company, but it may not be great for us. So we're not going to further invest in this company. So how can we get out and try to make a profit? You know, I think what's, what's interesting about y'all, I mean, when you look at the mineral space and you ask someone, okay, rattle off the public minerals companies. You guys don't really get mentioned typically because you're not a pure play minerals public company, but you're essentially public through Alliance, right? Have you ever considered a spinoff? It's almost like the coal version of what Viper and Diamondback did. Is that ever come up? I mean, you're a banker. Talk about the, the dynamics and the steps of going through an IPO process versus a spinoff versus an RTO, you know, the path to getting access to public equity, you guys are already there and you have the established, you know, the established asset base already. Have you guys explored that and just, you know, put your banking hat back on and kind of walk through all that from a strategic alternatives perspective? Well, from an equity appreciation perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. So if you take a look at our multiples, we're valued about three times. So even though we can, pay off our bonds within the next probably 18, 20, you know, a short period of time, if we wanted to and be completely unlevered, 
we're trading as if we're going to be dead in three years. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to be enticed by that multiple of those same minerals cash flows, which are going to be well in excess of $100 million this year, probably, you know, 120, 130 in that range. That same cash flow will be valued at more than triple what it currently is within our current structure. What's the trade-off there? Because you're you're getting cash flow from the parent company from, you know, I, I don't know, would you classify coal as uncorrelated to oil and gas or correlated? I mean, th- th- that's a, a massive benefit that's unique. Have you all kind of done the analysis on how the pros and the cons of separating versus staying married? Not a great depth. It's not been a high priority for us. We've had, you know, various investment banks pitch us on it. We've had various inbounds of people that wanted to basically effectuate a spin and merge because, you know, how do you define scale in this market? Is it hundred million? Is it 200 million? Is it 500 million? It all depends on who you ask and what their asset base looks like because they're going to have a biased view and a, and a banker is going to have a biased view as well. But there's no need for us to do it right now. It's always on the table. But right now, what we've done in the past quarter is we elected to convert Alliance Royalty from a partnership into a C-Corp. So we did that mainly because it was a tax burden to our investors. So oil and gas royalty income is considered passive income in the tax code. And on your K-1, it goes through box seven, which is taxed at your highest marginal tax rate. And a lot of MLP, MLP investors are in the highest tax rate. So we were burdening our investors with a very high tax burden. So we, we elected to check the box, convert it to a C corporation, basically a blocker corporation, pay our 20% federal tax in a small percentage of, of state. And then we're just recycling that cash in the acquisitions. That being said, if we need incremental capital, we can pull it from the parent anytime we want. That's within allowances in our credit agreement. And But if we push it back up, it'll be double tax. So we can do that, but that'll be a dividend tax to the parent. So that would be less than ideal. But we're, right now, we're just using that cash and building it up for acquisitions. The strategy about separating the two companies, you know, initially, the concern would have been, well, if we if we separate $100 plus million a year cash flow from ARLP, ARLP may need that cash flow at some point for other things, be it coal, be it, you know, other strategic acquisitions. Right now, with the cash flow of coal, that's really not a concern because we're we're making very nice returns on our in our coal operations currently and for the foreseeable future. Uh, that being said, there's no real draw for us to separate, but you can make the argument that at some point, if we keep recycling, you know, 100 million, 120 million, 150 million, 170 million of our cash flow back into the ground every year and, and this asset bubble grows, it'll have to be addressed at some point. But right now it's always an option, but it's not a high priority. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts. 
where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals, or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. Can you talk about the investor base of Alliance? My understanding is it's highly retail. You know, when you look at headwinds with raising money for oil and gas with ESG, you're not going to face that with a coal investor base, right? You're you're going the other end of the spectrum. So oil and gas looks pretty from the ESG perspective relative. Yeah, if they're comfortable with coal, they're certainly going to be comfortable with oil and gas. And, and, and the retail base we have is pretty significant and it's sticky. So we have investors that have been with us for decades, a, a meaningful percentage. And we obviously have a lot of internal ownership predominantly through our, our chairman and CEO, Joe Kraft, owns a large component of the company. And just like a lot of senior management, you know, we're not sellers. So we're, we're long-dated holders. And so you have this sticky, you know, investor base. What I don't know is how many of our investors really focus. I think with each quarter, they're getting, we're getting more and more questions about our oil and gas mineral portfolio. But the vast majority of our questions historically have all been centered around thermal coal operations because that's the, the heart of the company. So the priority is just to continue in an integrated aspect, continue to grow the oil and gas mineral segment because it's a test case and a successful test case of the diversification strategy that we've already employed successfully that we want to replicate in some other segment going forward, you know, some other sector going forward. But to your earlier point, you know, being an LP investor, if that's what it is, or an active, not an LP, but a true partner with some, some companies is also very interesting to us, but how do we monetize our relationships and our skill sets to where there's a strategic tie to what we can bring to the table outside of capital? I mean, anyone, anyone can bring money, right? But but what skill sets that we've honed over decades can help whomever we partner with be a better company is part of that, a large part of that, in my opinion. I think gold is super interesting. There's so many parallels. I don't, I'm no expert in the gold space, but David Garofolo from Gold Royalty Corp, there, his team reached out to me and I had him on the podcast about a year ago. And I just found it interesting. I said, let's have him on because maybe there's some parallels here between what the mining, uh, the mining and, and gold royalty space is going through and the public oil and gas royalty space is going through. And there was some interesting parallels, but with like five to 10 year lags. And they were obviously ahead of us. And it was interesting, you know, for gold mining, it was very much a project finance type structure. You know, you come in and carve an override out and, and that's what's used to help fund project development because the capital is not there. And I, I just imagine with the operational IP that Alliance has on coal mines, you know, some of that could be contributed 
you know, board level or as an investor strategically, but I'm just kind of- uh, Well, I mean, I would agree. I mean, we, we have decades of experience in large scale, high CapEx project management expertise that we bring to the table. You know, you mentioned Diamondback and, and Viper. What, what we've also broken out here lately is just highlighting the, the coal royalty segment that we have. So we, we have the ability to control, we have a coal royalty segment that call it, you know, plus or minus $40 million a year EBITDA that's in addition to our oil and gas mineral revenue that we control, right? And that is steady Eddie. I mean, that's just a base of cash and it's coal that we mined where we own the mineral interest. So that's a component of the royalty stream that we've been just trying to break out really and just tell people to say, hey, Alliance, here's operated thermal coal, here's coal royalties, here's oil and gas royalties, and here's the third leg of the stool, which currently is those two aforementioned investments that we, we want to expand upon. To where by the end of the decade, my expectation is that we're still going to be core to what we're doing as it relates to fossil fuels, but we're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to be a different company in that, and I'm not saying it's better or worse, but these investments are going to bear fruit over time. And we're going to have three, four, five credible segments where, and I don't think we're smart enough to invest in X and invest in Y and their hedges against one another. They're just good businesses, right? To where generate cash flow, to where we can return that to our investors and continue to siphon off cash flow from predominantly right now the thermal coal side in order to reinvest in those. Because some of these alternative energies or a lot of them don't generate cash flow for a number of years, so you still have to underwrite that that cash equity in order to get it to the point where it is a cash flow entity. Got it. Okay. Excellent. Well, let's kind of to close out the episode, let's loop back to minerals and let's really talk a little bit more about your portfolio, your strategy going forward, what deals you're looking at, basins you're focused on, et cetera. So you kind of gave the 30,000 foot view of the LP investments in Aldale, and then you took over a lot of the Aldale portfolios you were invested in. Then you made the wing one and two acquisitions, but from an NRA's perspective, and then the basins you're in, and then kind of percentage allocation, you already mentioned 100, 120 million NTM. So that's kind of on the cash flow side, but break down the portfolio and, and what it looks like. And, and then let's talk about, you said you've made a couple of bolt-ons in the last couple of years since coming on board. Where have they been? What are you guys looking at? Where have you really found your sweet spot to be in terms of the development profile of the asset and the basins and you know all, all that jazz. So start with the overview on the portfolio. Yeah, so overview of portfolio is around 58 plus thousand royalty acres spread across Delaware, Midland, Scoopstack Merge, Bakken, and Appalachia. And I will say that our focus has not been heavily on Bakken and App- Appalachia. I mean, Appalachia is probably 3% of our portfolio and it's something that quite frankly, I don't spend a lot of time on just because we were, our hands are full predominantly in, in the Permian. And the, the Bakken, I uh, do like the Bakken, easy basin to understand, you know, one to two target system. The challenge with Bakken is really scaling it up because a lot of the core areas have already been developed. Not to say there's not further development, and I think it'll be continued to develop over time, but relative to investing that capital in the Permian, it's, it's hard not to get sucked into the sex appeal of Midland and Delaware. So our royalty acre contribution is heavily Oklahoma and Permian. Our acquisition focus has been almost exclusively Permian. And that just comes down to the, the growth. I mean, even, even though we're a public company that a lot of people don't consider public when you talk about our, our minerals portfolio, we still need to reinvest, have growth, 
And it's hard to ignore the growth engine of the lower 48 being predominantly Permian weighted, not to say there's not other nooks and crannies, but also where can we scale up? So for the go forward, I would say that our focus is going to continue to be Midland and Delaware. Midland is a freight train. And it's not that I'm sandbagging, but it's from a budget perspective, it's been hard to accurately capture the growth in Midland Basin. And and we're trying everything we can, but it always seems to outperform our expectations. But we're more Midland heavy than than Delaware. So, you know, one of the acquisitions we made was uh, Boulders last year, sub $40 million deal in Culberson County, PDP light upside heavy. And that's kind of where I think we perform a little bit better because we're not interested or driven by, you said NTM, we're not, next 12 months is nice, but I'm more thinking about the next 12 years. So what is the asset base going to do through the end of the decade and into the 2030s? And do we find that appealing? Can we underwrite that because of the geological and engineering attributes that exist in the rock? And and, and that makes you all a very unique animal for a public company, right? That it's well, really- most people don't ask about, you know, in earnings calls and the, the calls have been, uh, the questions around oil and gas minerals have been increasing, but they still, it's 5% of the questions versus thermal coal. So the investors are really still more interested as they should be because it's 85% of the company and the core of what we do is thermal coal. I imagine that will change over time. But so we're trying to create a multi-decade growth vehicle, stable and growing income. And we're just less interested in buying a package that is loaded up with permits and ducts and you're paying a premium for that. That's where we normally get knocked down is if it's totally loaded up with next six and 12 months visibility, there's people willing to pay, you know, more than we are in that. But we're, we're, I think we're more successful in where it's a blend. There's, there's some PDP in there. There's certainly some permits and ducts. There's also an undeveloped component that we can really dig into and say, this is, it's not developed. There's no permits on it, but it is a great position that with knowing these operators that they are going to develop. We may be a little bit off in timing, but it is going to get developed. Right. So you need to have cash flows and it's a depleting asset base. So we think each acquisition, I start thinking about what it's going to look like in 2030, not just 2023. So I'm not sure if that separates us from people or not, because we're not beholden to these, you know, EBITDA or, or volume metrics. Our, our, our investors don't, that's not a deciding factor in why people invest in our stock. Listen, it's, it's a very family office-like view. And Joe owns a majority of Alliance and has a large family office. And so I think you're kind of pulling from both worlds, right? You have the benefits of being public and having a stable parent with, with this steady cash flow. You also have this long, this family that running the company who's got a viewpoint for 20, 30 years onwards. It's, it's, a, it's great. It's, a, it's compelling. I think it's great you mentioned that. I think for me personally, defines you guys a bit differently on, you know, what kind of assets can be taken down in the future, right? Versus you being alongside the other pure play publics, which I think have to do duck heavy, permit heavy, PDP heavy deals, for sure. They have a different master to answer to effectively. And I think the private family office analogy is, is unique because we think about generational income, not annual income. And then uh, what, what about deal sizes? So you guys don't have a ground game internally, right? Are you willing to we're, take We're down? working on that right now. I think the ground game, you know, we, we revisit strategy regularly, you know, and for everyone's going to have an opinion on this, but I would think that 
Well, from my opinion, in the past couple of years, it's always it ebbs and it flows. But you can take a look at the undeveloped component of a package that's that's either publicly or privately brokered, and the undeveloped component of the dollars per NRA that you pay for that as part of a package could be plus or minus what you pay an individual on the ground game. And sometimes there's always dislocation. So sometimes you're actually paying more for those in undeveloped NRAs as part of a package, and sometimes you're paying less versus the ground game. That being said, I think you need to have your fingers in both pie in, in both pies in order to understand the arbitrage between the two. So we're looking heavily into doing that right now and seeing what the capital allocation is going to be on the ground. And again, that's that's buying things that largely the more it gets developed, the more you're going to have to buy things that are developed. All right, more PDP and ducks and permits. But it's more about how can we accretively make these acquisitions in areas that we like that's going to get developed not just next year, but you know, 2025 and beyond. We're going to be very surgical in the areas and the buy boxes that we put forth. We may have a two-tiered approach to where we have a, a surgical team to go in for isolated strikes and a broader team to go in for a basin approach. But we're looking at both of those right now to augment the package acquisitions. I think both are very interesting. And like I said, there's an arbitrage in the undeveloped dollars per NRA between the two. But if you're not, to know the game, you have to be in the game. So you have to be in both games to understand where the ARB and the best value lies. Yeah, well, I did a, a webinar a couple months ago and with a bunch of the PE shops and Peter Ray, NGP was on and he was just like, we love the ground game, but the ground game gets hot and then it gets cold and mm -hmm. you can't panic either way. You just got to understand that it ebbs and flows, like you said, but it's important. I think calling it an arbitrage opportunity, knowing which side to play on that is, is a great way to categorize it because that's really what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's only with, that's how I think about it. But if you're not in both, you don't know what that ARB is. And there may be some years where you just shut down sure. package acquisitions altogether and double down on ground and vice versa. You just have to play the cycles. For sure. Have you guys looked at Haynesville at all? You know, a lot of Permian heavy shops have made the jump to Haynesville. I think pad drilling and proximity to the Gulf Coast and then obviously the run-up in gas prices. There's a lot of really good storylines around the Haynesville. Would A, would you consider it? And B, if so, are you in the camp of, Yes, we'll look at it, but it has to be significant so that we have a footprint in the basin to then maybe build around versus doing onesies and twosies, right? Yeah, we have very small Permian, excuse me, Haynesville exposure through our LP ownership and LBL3. That being said, I do find it interesting to grow that exposure. The approach that we have taken previously is that if we can't get in a material acquisition to get embedded in it, maybe just focus elsewhere. But I think with our ground game efforts, we're going to change that view and probably start consolidating some mineral acres in, in the Haynesville. I mean, if you think about it, you have your growthy gas basin being Haynesville. Everything else is either throttled due to midstream bottlenecks like you know Northeast, or it's, it's fairly flat uh, like Oklahoma. We can get to Oklahoma in a second, even though it's been improving. But if you have your growth oil basin being Permian, the growth gas basin being Haynesville, and with the advent of LNG expansion in 25 and beyond, only makes that proposition more compelling. But do you buy, again, near term, or you buy stuff that's going to really, what is tier two today, maybe tier one in 2027? So how do you orchestrate that acquisition strategy in the Haynesville? But we have participated in a couple of Haynesville processes, have not been successful in those acquisitions, but arguably it's it's a basin to where we're still learning technically, even though it's not that complicated of an area to learn. But if we're going to make a hundred plus million dollar bet, we're going to make sure that we have everything tied down. Uh, but if we have a ground game to where we're only investing $10 million a year or so just in a Haynesville on ground game, 
you can learn a little bit and maybe that, that we'll, we'll learn as we go and then i'll make a subsequent larger acquisition uh a bit more achievable because we'll have more technical immersion into the basic got it got it um, but the the approach going forward is is really permian focused and we are uh open to haynesville acquisitions both ground and package and when, when i look at our mid-continent position that's something that we'll selectively acquire the the taint has of the stack specifically that's come and gone. People know how to develop it. You know, they've upspaced and it is what it is. It's going to have higher break-evens, but the break-evens are quite compelling in specific areas. And you can play, you know, a three-tiered system between scoop stack and merge, depending upon what you want to do. And if you want to get gassy, you have that. If you want to get oilier, you can get that. And then arguably you can buy the minerals at a discount relative to Permian, which is why we would never sell ours because it's worth more to us than it is to anyone else. Yeah. Uh, the problem with, with the MidCon is just, velocity of capital and scale i think you can buy the discount on the ground at least it's super fragmented it's i think extremely difficult to put more than five ten million bucks a year on the ground in anadarko and mm -hmm. i think your peers who also have positions of scale in anadarko feel similar to you that they're not going to get market you know from the market they're not going to get the value they feel it's worth long term and so i think it'll be interesting to see how long it takes that significant transaction materialize in the Anadarko. I think you'll continue to see them primarily in the Haynesville and the Permian. I would argue Appalachia has a similar challenge in that folks aren't really willing to pay for the upside that the folks who have built these large positions feel the upside is worth. And I think there's a challenge of pace of development up there with limited midstream takeaway capacity. And, and so the same reason there's only been a couple of large scale deals in Appalachia because people don't feel they're getting the upside and and now you start to see the more PDP heavy deals or smaller deals, just not the large material ones, because you can paint a picture that, hey, I don't know when this is going to get developed in Midland Basin. There aren't ducks, good rock, and there's a path forward in the next six years. You can't say that in other basins as definitively, right? So yeah. it's really a shame just from an energy security and energy development perspective. I mean, Appalachia is phenomenal. It's just a shame that we can't get it out the basin. You know, the base assumption that almost everyone assumes is that there's not going to be any large scale pipelines ever built. Hopefully the sentiment is wrong because I would love to see it happen, but to your, it's just throttled as a governor on it, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, last question, and I should have asked this earlier, but on the diversification front, have you guys explored non-op or, or, you know, AFE buying as, as a strategy? No, the decision was made a long time ago to where we have, we already have a high CapEx part of the business being thermal coal. I cannot tell you the, the amount of capital that requires to keep these mines running at an efficient, safe, and top tier levels. So that's a very capital intensive part of our business. And we chose not to endeavor into yet another capital intensive part of the business. It's a good balance uh, between the two. The diversification is not just by commodity, it's by actual nature of the business. That's right. Okay, that's right. excellent. Well, Kirk, been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. And, and I, I hope this has been helpful for some of the folks out there. There's a lot of assets out to market, coming to market, and you guys are one of the logical end buyers for a lot of that stuff. So hope this clarification helps some folks and uh, you get invited to a few other kind of more targeted processes and you can continue to put money to work. But enjoy the rest of the summer and look forward to, to seeing you again soon in person. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the oil and gas minerals and royalty space. 
With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is looking to continually bring awareness to the minerals and royalty space in order to help companies and investors form new partnerships and buy and sell more deals. If you're interested in learning more about how Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, content creation, executive search, asset divestiture, and investment buy-side advisory, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Thanks, and see you next time.